welcome to the Age Stage, a program that looks at issues and matters affecting older Australians. This program was made possible by our sponsors Aftercare Australasia and Australian Unity. Uh, my name is Cheryl Brody, and today I have with me a very, very special guest, Professor Avni Sali. Just a little bit, bit of background about Professor Sali. Professor Sali is the founding director of the National Institute of Integrative Medicine. They're based in Hawthorne. Um, it, the NIM, uh, otherwise known, is a non-for-profit organisation that brings together education and research into integrative medicine, as well as facilitating its practice at the NIM clinic. Uh, NIM is Australia's largest integrative medical institute conducting research into complementary and integrative therapies and delivering educational programs in its integrative medicine to the public and also the medical community. Um, as a national leader in integrative medicine, the NIM Clinic offers the best evidence-based conventional and complementary treatments for cancer, heart disease, dementia, diabetes and other illnesses. Um, at the NIM, they empower people to take control of their health. Welcome, Professor Sali. Thank you, Cheryl, and thank you for that, uh, that comprehensive uh, introduction. Integrated medicine, of course, uh, will replace all forms of medicine in the future because it incorporates all of the beneficial medicine that can help people, and uh, an important part of it is also to make people as healthy as possible. And uh, that is uh, uh, a key aspect of... Uh, not only preventing illness, but uh, being able to treat serious illnesses in the best way by using all of medicine and in particular making the people healthy at the same time. Right, okay. Um, well, I'm a big fan of uh, prevention rather than cure um, in my own health and um, I've worked myself with uh, Professor Sali and it's been a really positive and rewarding experience. Today, um, Professor Sali, we're speaking about um, the, um, the need for exercise and when people are quite busy with lots of distractions, um, uh, including tax returns at this, this time of the year, um, why is it important, Professor Sali, for older people to exercise or is exercise just something for the younger people? Exercise is important for absolutely every age group, and but in particularly for elderly people. The exercise area, of course, is not just about getting out and either jogging or walking or other physical activity. It's also to do with other things that happen when you do, for example, a regular walk. Uh, exercise not only moves your joints and exercises your muscles and uh, helps to make your bones healthier, but it can be part of interaction with other people. Either during the exercise, you might do it with a group, you might do it with a close friend, and at the end, sit down and having a chat. 
the, I, I mentioned this last time when we were talking, that loneliness and isolation is now becoming the most important risk factor to our health and also to longevity, not having other people to talk with. So exercise can be part of the reason why you can get together and uh, and interact with other people. And we do know, of course, that it does make your joints healthier and your bones healthier and your muscles healthier. Mm -hmm. But it goes even further than that. Mm -hmm. So it is really... Now, one of the... One of the figures that has been uh, used out there that you do 10,000 steps a day. Now, uh, th this has always been a controversial thing, but if you actually allow yourself the time to do the exercise, that in itself is very important, that you value your health that much, that you will allow this time, because uh, this happens even with my f a number of my friends have retired, and they seem to be even busier sometimes after they've retired than before retirement. Right. They, they, they say they don't have the time to do it. Okay. But it is really very important to actually give yourself that time because you value your health. And that's why you allocate that particular time. It should ideally, like most things that you can do without any worries, is to make it a routine. Okay. You will do it either every day uh, or you'll have a fixed time when you will do it if you're not going to do it every day. Right. Um, because that, that takes away a lot of worry and stress. If you do it at a regular time and ideally you organise to do it with other people mm -hmm. or at least to connect with other people at the end of your exercise. Okay. Very important. Excellent. Um what do you think um, people can expect uh, from having a regular exercise routine in their lives? Well, the first thing is you will generally have better health. We've got so much data on that that the, the people that exercise on a regular basis will actually feel better. Uh, there have been studies to compare exercise against uh, exercise by exercise, we can mean a, a, a walk. It, it could be equally as effective as an antidepressant drug in improving your mood. Uh, we know that, of course, it's protective against uh, heart disease, cancer, diabetes. In cancer, too, for example, we've got very good information on this, that after a breast cancer operation, after a bowel cancer operation, you can reduce your chance of recurrence by up to 60%. If you do some regular walk. Wow, that's amazing. And, uh, that's enormous compared to all of the other treatments that are available for cancer. But just a simple walk can reduce your recurrence by up to 60%. And uh, it, so overall, it's protective in every way. But even if you've got a medical condition, then that is going to help your treatment, no matter what it is. Okay. Whether it's elevated blood pressure, etc., or cancer, as I've just mentioned. Right, right. And, and would you say, Professor Sali, that there is a good way or a bad way to to exercise? 
Well, look, the, in, in, say, for example, if we focus on bone strength, with bone strength, you will get the best result when you actually provide some resistance to your uh, joints when you're bending them. Because when you bend the joint, uh, it's the muscles that are responsible, uh, predominantly. And uh, if you can provide resistance, like lifting a weight, or I have, for example, some simple exercises that you can do within a minute that can help increase bone strength. And uh, you must provide resistance. If, for example, I bend my elbow 200 times without any resistance, that's not going to increase to any significant degree my muscle strength or bone strength. But the minute I put any form of resistance, whether it's a weight or whether I use my other arm to uh, prevent me from bending my arm without resistance. So immediately we have to increase our strength. We, we improve the strength of our muscle and the strength of our bone. We call these resistance exercises. So people may want to actually even search that in Google or whatever to get more information about it. But it's about putting pressure on the, uh, whether, whether it's your uh, legs or your arms, uh, and also you can do it for your spine, that will increase your bone strength. If it's just simple exercise without any resistance, and like walking, it will, it will be of some value to, to uh, bone strength, but the best value is when you put resistance to your movement. And that can increase bone and muscle strength. Muscle strength can increase even even within a period of about six weeks, whereas bone strength can take six months to a year to get significant improvement in bone strength. Mm, okay. So um, there's the two types. There's the passive exercise or there's the resistance exercise. Right. Okay. And for bone strength and muscle strength, and look... Bone strength and muscle strength are really very important in helping people to uh, manage very adequately well beyond on the age of 100 years. We really have to be thinking about this uh, in the future, that uh, living to 100 need not be a spectacular figure. People have been doing it by, by virtually no particular knowledge about health just by accidentally doing the right things. Right. These days can do the right things and maintain a healthy age but also be well and fit. Exactly. And Eat good bones and good muscles. Yes, and um, also it would be uh, remiss of me not to discuss the... Um, the impact of exercise on our bones and in relationship to uh, illnesses such as osteoporosis and how how the exercise can affect our bones. Yes, now it's been shown that uh, moderate exercise or mild exercise like a walk can actually improve your immunity. So therefore you're less likely to get the flu. Unfortunately, with the flu, and which is very common and colds, there's been a lot of emphasis on 
using things like vaccines, and they, of course, can be beneficial, but they don't guarantee that uh, you're completely protected. But by doing your exercise and, uh, and improving your diet uh, and uh, reducing your stress, one of, the, one of the things I mentioned before that it can be a useful antidepressant to be doing your walk, but it's also very useful in reducing your stresses. So very important from that point of view, in particularly in the, in the winter area when the flu is so, and colds are so common. Right, excellent. Um, thank you for your time today, um, once again, Professor Sali. And are you available um, if patients want to book in a time to see you at the uh, NIM? Yes, of course. We, you know, either myself or other, we've got about 30 doctors here. So we can organise that. And the other thing I was suggesting that at some time, we, if it's possible, through your radio station, do a question and answer program for people who've got issues that they want to raise. Yeah, we could look at that in the future. Um, yeah. And yeah. we will definitely um, look forward to having your um, colleagues, other doctors speaking on a host of, of different um, subjects related to health yes. and well-being of the older, older Australians um, and issues affecting um, um, the age stage as per the program. Um, but thank you um, for your time, Professor Sali, and I wish you a, a lovely um, vacation holiday that you're embarking on shortly. Yes, thank you. It's a pleasure. Today we have the pleasure of welcoming welcoming Dr. Almond to the program. Um, Dr. Almond is a lecturer in digital health and nursing at Swinburne University on the Hawthorne campus. Um, she's also uh, got a background in clinical as a clinical reference lead with the Australian Digital Health Agency. And furthermore, also, her background is in nursing, in primary uh, chronic disease management um, in rural and remote locations. So good morning, Dr. Helen Armand. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me to uh, come along and talk to you today. Pleasure. Now, today I um, teed up an interview with uh, your office um, in relation to my health record and um, to, we're going to speak um, for a few minutes about is um, my health record. If you can um, tell us, um, Dr. Armand, um, in your own words, uh, as to what the uh, my health record is. So I've got a few key messages and then we can break down to some questions. So the key messages is uh, more than 90% of Australian population now have a My Health Record. My Health Record is a secure online summary of your health information and the way you share that health information between um, yourself and your healthcare providers, like your GP. Having a My Health Record means patients' important health information, including allergies, uh, medical conditions and treatments, medicine details, scan reports can be accessed through one system. Mm -hmm. Information is available whenever 
whenever and wherever you go. So you don't need to remember test dates, medicine names or dosages or carry medical documents with you. But most importantly, maybe, my health record is putting people in control of their health records for the very first time. Okay, excellent. Um, and I understand it's an Australian government initiative, is that right? That's absolutely right. Um, and I think um, there's some specific benefits uh, for older Australians. Okay. The, oldest, the older Australians are one of the population groups that can most benefit from having my health record. They tend to see multiple healthcare providers and maybe in and out of hospitals and are having new medications, changing to assisting medications, prescribed more and more often. They're also the group that are most likely to worry about having to remember their health history. Obviously, the older we get, the more history we have, uh, like medicines, chronic conditions, as you mentioned earlier, dates of tests with different and new healthcare providers. By having my health record, all of this important health information is available to a treating health care provider that they've given permission to access in one place and it's accessible securely online at any time from anywhere. Mm -hmm. So that means that um, someone listening would be um, able to assume that their GP, their personal GP that they might have been seeing for many, many years or uh, another GP that they've only just um, discovered uh, potentially yep. um, can um, both access the, um, the health information and the history of um, that patient. Is that right? So who can access and upload information to my health record? I think is the uh, question you're answer asking there. That's right. So, so it's your choice as a person or a patient, unfortunately we do become patients at some points in our lives, but it's your choice who sees my health record and what's in it. You can choose to share that information with your healthcare provider involved in your healthcare. Only the healthcare provider organisations involved in your care are who are registered with the My Health Record system operator are allowed by law to access your My Health Record this might include a GP, a pharmacist, the pathology labs, hospitals, specialists, allied health professionals, all health professionals you hear there. So it's not just, you know, your next door neighbour or somebody else. They have to be a health professional. So by allowing them to upload and view and share documents in my health record, they'll have more detailed picture with which to make decisions, um, diagnose and provide treatment. Having said that, my health record is a supplement to the information that you are giving and the doctor already has on you. And that's really important um, to acknowledge. It does not replace that knowledge mm -hmm. your doctor has. It is an adjunct. I see. So um, just to clarify further, does that mean that test results um, such as pathology um, would be available um, faster, potentially? 
Ab- absolutely, it does. So pathology is our pathology companies, I should say, are now all becoming part of my health record. They're registering as organizations so they can upload that information. Not all areas are doing that yet because not all organizations have met what we call conformancy. So that security, privacy, ethics of uploading information and receiving information is very, very strict in my health record. So any organization has to be what we call conformant. There's a process that has to be gone through so you can upload those. So pathology is more and more being uploaded. Maybe some are not quite conformant yet, but certainly there's there's a big, big increase in that um, that's happened since January. Okay. So more and more we're seeing it. Okay. Um, that sounds really um, informative. Um, now, when um, when can we expect the my my health record would be available? So my health record is available now. Um, how you set it up? So from thirty first of January, everybody had a shell of a my health record. So once you see your doctor, specialist or hospital and acknowledge you have a My Health record, they can stop, start uploading information into that document. Until you actually give permission that information can be uploaded, then um, it, 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 can, it is an empty um, shell in the cloud, if you like. So basically, since uh, 31st of January, unless you opted out of my health record, Mm -hmm. and my health record would have been created for you, you can log on to my health record securely through MyGov, which is where pensions come through, to see and manage your health information. If you don't want to set up uh, uh, online access, your healthcare provider can still add and see health details. So you don't actually have to do that. If you wish, you can allow others, such as a partner or a carer, as we're getting older, a family member or a trusted friend to access your record to help you with the whole online um, feature of my health record by making them a nominated representative. That's how you do that. And you can also contact, there's a telephone helpline, um, 1-800-723-471. So, you know, if you're more comfortable picking up the telephone and asking for help, that number is there as well. We don't say you've got to go online all the time because we know, and it isn't just an older person thing, which I know some people think, um, not everybody's always comfortable with doing that, going online. They want to talk things through. So that number, 1-800-723-471, is available for those people. Okay. And I understand as well that the My Health Record um, has a an opportunity there for people to add um, their emergency contact as well? Absolutely. So as an older Australian or anybody, really, you can use My Health Record to keep a track of your health information online by logging in securely and you can have a look at what's happening 
And if you don't want to set that access up, your healthcare providers still add it. As I've said, you can share important health details in an emergency. Add your emergency contacts so the doctors know who to call in an emergency. You can also add allergies current medications so your doctor can give you the right treatment at a critical time. Use privacy settings to choose who can access your record and who who can't access your record. Decide which healthcare provider have access to your health details. So you may have several specialists that you don't want to see certain bits of your healthcare. You can set up a notification so you get an SMS on your mobile phone or an email each time a new healthcare provider accesses your record. You can get help to manage your record from someone you trust, as I mentioned earlier. And you can have, most importantly, as we get older, to my mind, an advanced care plan and custodian details. Now, just to elaborate a little bit on that, an advanced care plan is basically you noting down your wishes so that in an event of a critical or a catastrophic health condition, you have written down your wishes for how you wish to be treated. There's that whole empowerment dignity aspect of that. So it's called an advanced care plan that um, let your doctor and family know how you want to be treated um, when you can no longer speak on your own behalf. It's so worthwhile. I I have one and I'm coming towards an older Australian, but I'm not. But um, I'm certainly um, an absolute advocate of being treated the way I would like to be treated even if I couldn't communicate those wishes. Right. Okay. Dr. Armand, it's been really helpful to discuss um, my health record with you today. Um, Just in relation to the security of um, the record, I believe it's against the law for someone to look at your record unless um, it is to provide you with your with health care um, and serious penalties would apply. They um, absolutely do. Right. Yes. So, yes. so there are many safeguards in place to okay. protect information held in my health record system, such as strong encryption, firewalls, secure login processes, and every um, entry into uh, my health record is uh, uh, logged and audited all the time. There are people, processes, technologies and legislation keeping the information held in my health record safe. My health record system is monitored by cybersecurity. I know these are all big words. I appreciate that. But cybersecurity is a centre in the Australian Digital Health uh, Agency. All personnel in Involved with the administration of the system, undergo security checks. So it's very, very safe. Okay. A range of security processes limit that access to my health record. External software goes through the conformance processes before it allows to connect to the system. Mm-hmm. So the technology to protect the sensitive personal health information held in my health record system includes firewalls to block unauthorized access, audit locks to track access to records, initial and regular anti-virus scanning um, of documents uploaded to uh, records, system monitoring to detect suspicious activity. 
privacy and information in my health record system is protected by various legislations and uh, significant penalties, as you mentioned, apply for deliberate misuse of information. So healthcare providers are also under, they're also professionals under professional legislation as well. So we as professionals, irrespective of my health record, are not allowed to access a person's information if it's not required. My health record further supports that argument. That detail. Okay. Hopefully, that answered the question because I know that's a concern for many people. Um, um, yes, and, and I could understand um, concerns in that regard. No one wants to um, share uh, private um, information easily, and people no. need that reassurance. So, if if people want to find out more information, I believe the website is www.myhealthrecord.gov.au. That's right. I suppose on that privacy, just to absolutely take that one step further, so I've talked about all the legislation, but setting up an access code, you decide which healthcare providers can view or update your My Health Record. Okay, that's that's You know, um, sharing your record access or that code with healthcare providers allows them to see your record, but they can't do it without that access code. Mm -hmm. And healthcare providers can still access your record, including restricted documents, during an emergency. Right. So there is a, we call it a break glass. However, from that moment of that break glass, maybe during a collapse of some type or other, it is very strongly audited and the access is only for a very limited amount of time. So you choose to control your access to your documents in My Health Record, shared health summaries, test results, hospital discharge summaries, restrict access to any documents in My Health Record you choose not to share with a healthcare provider and give your healthcare provider. Okay. An organisation's a representative, if you want. Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I think it's been really informative um, to to discuss um, the um, the My Health Record today. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Helen Armand. It's a pleasure. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, you can tell by my discussion, I'm an absolute advocate for my health record unashamedly, um, but it must be for the individual to choose that it's right for them. Right. Um, and if you want to remove a document, you can do if you want to. If you decide you don't want a My Health record, you can delete it. However, I would strongly recommend before deleting or cancelling your My Health record, take a minute to learn a bit more about it and think about how it can help you um, um, manage your health securely online. Mm -hmm. One person, one health, one record, wherever you are. So, opportunities all the time there. Thank you again for your time. Okay. It might, might be an opportunity to, to come back in the um, in the future and discuss further. Um, I would love to. That would be wonderful. Okay. Well, yeah. um, once again, um, thank you for your time and I, I will leave it there. Okay. Yeah, lovely. Have a great day. Thank you.
Thank you. Yeah, and yourself. Thank you. I enjoy the uh, the opportunity and the challenges. Thank- uh, Warren, so we just wanted to get a little bit more of an update on um, your thoughts on the Aged Care Royal Commission and how you think that might be affecting people in our demographic yeah. locally. Sure, Cheryl. Um, you know, look, one of the things is that... Uh, there's always there's always new information coming out. So the most recent, um, I suppose, revelation that that's come out from the commission has been about the, uh, the some of the appalling standards of food uh, that are being served up in um, in our uh, nursing homes yeah. across Australia. Now, again, you know, we always emphasise it's not everybody, and I think there were a couple of a couple of notable uh, reports about. Um, businesses that are that are doing really well in that space, but unfortunately there seems to be an overall trend towards um, it being an area that proprietors are cutting costs in, and and so what it means is that they're actually looking at providing um, three meals a day potentially, uh, include as well as uh, you know morning and afternoon tea for as little as seven dollars a day. Wow. Um, yeah. So obviously the only way that um, you're able to do that is you're not getting good quality <laughs> ingredients to start with. You, you're having to cut corners okay. there. And that's been some of the quite appalling um, reports that have been coming to light uh, in, in the Royal Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I'd, I would sort of contrast that to is this is, again, one of those strengths with the in-home support that people often um, you know, use as an alternative to, to nursing homes. Uh, and in those sort of situations, obviously, you're in your own kitchen, you've got control over your own shopping, so you can uh, purchase purchase your foods uh, to your tastes and to right. your budget. Exactly. Um, but the other thing is that home care packages can assist with the costs of uh, delivered meals. So uh, just to be clear, they, they can't assist with purchasing of actual general household food. That's that's something that's not allowable under the uh, under the guidelines. But if it is necessary for you to get delivered meals in, then that's often something that the uh, the home care package funds can be used to assist with those costs. Right. Um, and that can mean that you you've, you've often these these days those delivered meals the, the standards have gone up, you know, up and up and up. Um, yes. Even just by way of comparison, you know, things that you can get from the supermarket or things that you can order online for the general community, you know, like Neasy Meals and uh, U-Foods and things like that. Um, anyone that uses those will see that, you know, it's come a very long way from the old TV dinners that, um, that used to be, uh, you know, commonly available that home care packages can allow some people to do is in fact to have some cooking fresh cooking done in their home right. or someone there to assist mm. them yep. to to cook you know cook some old favorites that wow, perhaps that's things really encouraging yeah yeah, yeah thing, things that perhaps they've been mm-hmm. you know like enjoying uh, cooking and eating for the last 20 or 30 years but for whatever reason they sure. can't can't maintain that because perhaps uh, you know there's uh, a couple of parts of the recipe that they're just physically a little bit challenging yes and um, and of course nutrition is incredibly important is incro- important through your whole life but it's particularly important in your uh, in your later years of mm-hmm. life of course um, and there's a really common trend of people uh, older people losing appetite and d- becoming disinterested in food. Right. It's partly connected in some ways to 
are changes in people's sense of smell and sense of taste. Okay. Um, which then makes food less appetising. Um, but it can lead to sort of chronic, uh, you know, long-term weight loss, right? Which obviously has lots of health implications. Yes, it does. So, so, mm. so being able to sort of reconnect mm. with some of those favourite meals and having it cooked in your own home—it's all part of that experience. You get that beautiful cooking smell going through your whole house, and yeah, you get that sense of anticipation mm. of, uh, you know, or you can cook yourself some treats, perhaps something a bit naughty. And, sure, uh, the taste buds start to yeah. do their thing, don't. Thing. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Mm. And so um, having having home care, um, having a support worker come around and help with that um, often really sort of kickstarts that, that interest again in food and and your own tastes and, and, and reconnecting with some some enjoyment that you've perhaps had for many, many years in the house. Absolutely. So, Nothing can really replace that. One of the other things I wanted to sort of touch on, Cheryl, was just um, how approved aged care providers represent their fees, so okay. how they explain what those costs are Okay. Um, so that people are able to weigh up whether they're getting uh, more better value for money okay. from one approved aged care provider versus another approved aged care provider. Yes, I understand. Yeah, it's, it's always been something that's been quite difficult to do. I mm. think the, the the analogy we've used a few times is that it used to operate the, a bit like, you know, the old mobile phone plans or more recently the the those awful, um, um, you know, electricity supply plans that people were having to sort of you know, tearing their hair out trying to make sense of well, you know, which one's the better deal? We can't work it out. And aged care, unfortunately, in the last couple of years had fallen into a similar space where okay. it's very hard to know whether you were getting good value or not. Exactly. So, so these changes are really aimed at sort of trying to make it more of a level playing field and, okay. and they've brought in a standard way mm -hmm. of rep reporting and explaining um, your costs as a provider so that you can then get those figures and, and go to another company and say, give me the same information broken down in the same way and I can directly compare this item to that item and, and see, oh, well, you charge more for this but you charge less for that yes. and I can sort of, people can do their sums then and go, you know, well, I think that's better value for me in my circumstances. So that sounds like it's empowering the the actual um, age care, age person. Correct. So That's what it's intended to okay. do. It's, it, the government's really been trying to get aged care to work more as a market-driven um, system where the people that are sort of, if you like, purchasing the service, which yes. are your, your older people, um, are then able to um, make consumer decisions that then influence which companies are thriving and perhaps which companies are sort of, you know, perhaps falling by the wayside because they're not really delivering, you know, a, a, a suitable service at a reasonable cost. Absolutely. That sounds like a really good initiative to make sure that um, there is a competitive um, mm. playing field mm. um, and people are comparing apples with apples rather than apples with oranges, as the old yeah, adage goes. that's definitely been the issue up until now, I sure. think. So, um, uh, and probably the thing to be aware of is if people are, if, if, if uh, older people are uh, doing their homework and finding that the information they're being given doesn't seem to match those that sort of approach, 
Um, and so they're getting a lot of gobbledygook, uh, essentially, around around costs. Uh, I would strongly encourage them to be reporting that back to the Aged Care Quality um, Stand- Quality Commission um, okay. so that that will get looked into because um, I think, you know, obviously we do a little bit of... Um, we look at how we, where we're sitting within the industry, within the market, so we do a bit of market testing, I suppose you'd call it, um, and we have seen that there still seem to be some providers that aren't really explaining their pricing structure in a very um, in, in 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 strict accordance with what the government's asking them to do. Okay. There's some broad broad compliance, but it's not exactly the way the government's sort of requiring them to do it and it means they're you know they're being a little bit creative using a little bit of creative marketing techniques and sure. uh, yeah and I, and just just for the record mm. uh, aftercare we don't do that we've we've literally Excellent. you know there's a template that the that the federal government has provided as an example of how you might structure these these um, pricing and we've just literally taken that straight off the government website filled it in, put our name at the top of it, and, and that's what we give to our uh, our uh, um, aged care clients. Okay. So they can, you know, it's still got the it's still got the aged care logo on it, so, you know, they can see, look, it's straight from the source. Sure. Um, there's no sort of, um, you know, no smoke and mirrors going no, on. No, nothing to hide there. No, so no. Well, you transparent know, and yeah. easy to use. Yeah, that's that's really what we User want to be. Yeah, the um the, the government did get some feedback that they they um believe that you know the best the most user friendly way to present this information is fortnightly because um you know uh, I suppose it's a bit of a generalisation but a lot of um, um aged pensioners you know they are operating their budget on a fortnightly basis so they're used to perhaps thinking in terms of fortnights. Yes, that's the uh, pension in accordance with pension. I, I yeah, would think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, so that's kind of how it's structured, and that's we've just adjusted all of our, um, you know, literature and and pricing structures around that around that model, and that's really what everyone else should be doing too. Okay, mm. well, it sounds really really good. Mm. Um, so thanks for discussing that um, today, Warren. And uh, another topic we wanted to touch on was just uh, uh, it's been in the um, in the news recently. There was a um, um, Earl Haven nursing home um, forced closure. Mm. Uh, it was a little bit um, concerning mm. um, as to um, how that came about. Yeah, look, Cheryl, I think it's been uh, obviously for the people involved, it would have been incredibly traumatic because, as I understand it, they literally it literally closed overnight, so people were being um, um, you know forced to find alternate accommodation. Actually. At night, in the you know when they were in bed, <laughs> um, it was just quite bizarre. Um, look, uh, there's not a lot of detail that's out there at the moment. It, what I've seen is it, it seems to be a a dispute between the people that owned the the um, facility and and were in fact receiving the funding, uh, and and a company that they had subcontracted to actually operate. The uh, the um, the service right, in the nursing okay. home, so it, it, obviously that's must have become you know quite uh, acrimonious and the the working relationships broken down um, to the point that that there no longer was a service being delivered. I suppose the 
couple of comments I'd make about that are there's definitely been a greater sort of calls for, um, you know, government oversight and all of this sort of business. And I guess I would be encouraging people to sort of be a little bit cautious about how they approach that because sure. um, I think... So that was a Queensland aged care facility. Yeah. Um, would this be perhaps different to Victoria? And oh no, no, no. They're, okay. they're 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 nationally regulated. Sure. Um, oh, there has definitely been a degree of a finger pointing between the state and federal governments about you know who's who's to blame. Yes. Um, but to me, ultimately, the the people that are the blame are the people that are actually receiving the funds. Um, you know, if you're an approved aged care provider, you have, you know, we've, we've gone through that process. You have very clear, very explicitly, Strict. strictly spelled out um, obligations and responsibilities. Also, also some quite um, ethical and um, yeah. moral obligations, yes. I should think. Yes, but they're, cle- they're, they're clearly in that. Uh, um, quite uh, substantial um, financial disclosure requirements and financial monitoring. There's an annual financial monitoring um, process. Okay. But the reality is, like any business, if it's being run badly, it's being run badly and and it can fall over at any time. Exactly. The the thing that I would say is that uh, it would emphasise people is whilst it's been incredibly traumatic for the people involved, I mean, I just... I can't say how you know how strongly I, I sort of really would feel for people in, in you know, families and the, the residents themselves in that situation. Just horrible. Um, yes. It's incredibly rare that this happens. Like this is the, this is probably the only time that I've heard of it um, that it's come to this sort of extreme uh, position, and it's only will have come about in that way because, again, without sort of pointing the finger at anyone specifically. Clearly, the people that were involved in the operation of the business and in the in the financial sort of uh, role as the approved provider have not been taking their obligations seriously and have fundamentally failed in some way. So it's it's quite an extraordinary breakdown. It's okay. not the norm. It's very very rare. Yes. Um, because there's there's literally you know hundreds if not thousands of um, nursing homes right. and aged care providers across Australia. Particularly are, on the Mornington Peninsula. Yep, who are all operating reliably and confidently and comfortably and have been doing so for many years and yes. there's no reason to think they wouldn't keep doing exactly. that. Exactly. So I think it's really, uh, you know, an aberration. You know, it's, a, it's an extraordinary event. It's it not is. the norm. Right. And people don't need to take it as meaning that, that, you know, the nursing home that their family member might be in is likely to have a similar event. Okay. Um, because um, it just sounds like a unique set of circumstances. Okay. And in terms of government oversight of it, look, it's, you, wouldn't, you don't hear me defend the government very often, um, but, you know, in this instance, I'd really clearly say, how on earth can they know? How on earth can they know whether someone is doing something just completely off the reservation in terms of how they're meant to operate a service um, that would lead to this sort of collapse? Okay, yes. um, it, because, you know, they're still putting their tax in, presumably, so there's a level of monitoring. They still have to meet their financial compliance right. uh, annually, so there's a level of monitoring. They're still being, you know, assessed. Uh, and, you know, they still have to meet the standards. Yes. You know, I, I think... They probably could try and build some extra safeguards in there. Um, I think that when providers choose to have a more complex 
financial or business structure, yes, such as this sort of subcontracting arrangement, okay, um, I think there probably does need to be some increased scrutiny around that. Yeah, um, I can understand. But, but mm. you know, for, for businesses like Aftercare, where where you know we receive the funding, right. we provide the service. Yes, we're the ones that are you know it's the same entity. It's in house. Yeah. It's really, again, very straightforward, right. and it's about what you see is what you get. Okay, good. Um, and so, uh, I think those sort of arrangements, by contrast, are quite robust, but they're also quite transparent. Yes, they are. Um, yeah. So, you know, perhaps if anything, that's where it needs to be looked at. But yeah, I, I just it just concerned me a bit that there was a lot of. There's obviously some politicising of, of what's occurred. Yes. And uh, well, that's that's my view. Um, and in doing that, there's sort of a suggestion that that there's not enough due diligence going on, whereas I don't believe that there's any evidence to support that. It's just so rare, this sort of occurrence. It's an exceptional um, case. It's far more common if, if organisations run into financial difficulties. Okay. Um, again, you have very clear obligations to report that. It's actually a requirement in the Act sure. that if you're an approved provider, you have to report any significant changes to your financial circumstances okay. uh, at the time that it's occurring. Right. So clearly, well, when I say clearly, it would seems very strongly to suggest that that hasn't been occurring. Yes, okay. Um, and and you, was... you've just kind of got a bit of a rogue operator somewhere in that mix. Yes. Uh, from That would be my best guess. Okay. Um, so it is on the onus of um, the provider to, oh. to make those absolutely and, you know and that's very clearly spelled out to you not just as a as a um, you know a business entity so as a company but even the key personnel within that company are personally liable you have to provide a whole lot of diligence around okay. a whole lot of compliance actually around you as a as an individual right so I've had to do that as the general manager of aftercare the yes. managing director of aftercare has had to do that people that would be on boards of directors of other companies, um, you know, if they had that kind of structure. Um, you are what they call a key personnel and right. you have very clear obligations, but also you get fully checked out. You have to provide a personal police check. Um, you have to provide a whole lot of sort of financial information, you know, around loans and around your business structure, your corporate structure. Yes. It's, it's quite intrusive, um, but it's quite thorough. Exactly, and, and, and so because it's you know, a very responsible position, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And so my sense is that's largely being done, okay, as well as it can be done. Yes, and that most people do fully comply with that because obviously the business consequences of them not complying with it are enormous. They'll they'll get their reputation dragged through the mud and they'll potentially you know be barred from ever you know running a similar service again. So. Yep. Yeah, it's not ideal at all. No. Um, but yeah, so this has happened and um, it's not something to be uh, losing sleep over. I don't believe so. I think it's really extraordinarily rare. I mean, look, certainly if people were worried about it, they might want to ask for some more information about the financial position of their current provider. They are entitled to do that. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's something that's very rarely exercised. That but goes they, back to the Charter of Healthcare uh, Look, rights? it's not in the new charter, but it's okay. actually built into the existing kind of rules, if you like. So okay. they, they can ask for some information around the sort of current financial, you know, viability. Oh, okay. Um, so, you know, I, I would certainly think it's a reasonable thing for 
people would be asking you know, if they had any concerns. Excellent. Okay. Well, thanks you for your time. I hope your winter is enjoyable, <laughs> and uh, uh, we'll speak uh, again soon. Yep. Lovely. <laughs>